The Legacy of John Williams. Celebrating the music and the art of Maestro John Williams. Hello everyone, I am Maurizio Caschetto, editor of The Legacy of John Williams. Welcome to a new episode of The Legacy of John Williams podcast. In this case, also available as a video on our YouTube channel, because it's a very special occasion as I have two special guests here with me today. The first is a world-renowned conductor and musical scholar. He has conducted most of the world's major symphony orchestras and opera companies, served on the Yale University faculty for 15 years and former chancellor at the UNC School of Arts. He's the founder of the Hollywood Bow Orchestra, which he conducted for more than a decade and one of the world's champions of film music in the concert hall. He's also author of several best-selling books, including the 2022 bestseller, The War on Music. So let me welcome conductor and author, John Mauceri. Hello, John, thank you for being here Hello. and nice to see you again. My pleasure, my pleasure to see you again. So uh, this is not the first time John is on the show because he already, actually you were one of the very first guests when I launched the podcast back in 2019. And we discussed on a lot of things, you know, mainly focusing around John Williams' role in the film music history. And today we'll explore more about that and uh, because of your recent book, The War on Music. Uh, but first, let me introduce the second guest that we have today, who is one of the most talented composers of his generation and the leader of the wave of composers specialized in music for video games. His score for the best-selling game, Journey, was the first video game score to be ever nominated for a Grammy Award. Among his most popular works, there are titles like the Banner Saga series, Assassin's Creed Syndicate and Abzu. He also composed music for more than 50 feature films and he's a very passionate advocate of music education. So let me welcome composer and conductor Austin Wintery. Hi Austin, thank you for being here on the Legacy of John Williams podcast. If I'd known that there was the potential to do this uh, in Italian in order to keep <laughs> up uh, apparently with the two of you, I would have made different <laughs> life choices uh, in decades prior. So forgive my slumming it here monolingually as a as a cliche American in that way. <laughs> no problem at all, Austin. So um, I'm a huge fan of yours. You are certainly one of the, as I said, one of the most talented of your generation. And you know, I'm a follower also of your adventures on you know podcasting and YouTube channels. You do so <laughs> much in, in terms of keeping uh, in touch with your audience and the listen the, the word of listeners of soundtrack music and and you also have a very specific point of view about these topics uh, so i'm very very happy i know that you know john very well and so i think that today there will be plenty to discuss so i would like to um to introduce the the topic of our discussion today which is the book the war on music by john mccherry because the idea of having both of you started when i finished reading this book, published on Yale University Press. It's a wonderfully thorough, passionate and lively reassessment of the music of the 20th century. And to understand why 
A lot of what was composed during this period has been left out from the repertoire and still struggle to find its proper place in many ways. So the thesis displayed throughout these 200 pages uh, is that a lot of the music fell victim of the political battleground between nations during the three major wars of the 20th century, mainly World War I, World War II, and the Cold War, thus creating walls, barriers, and perimeters around genres, style, and even specific composer, mainly the ones writing tonal music versus the so-called modernist or avant-garde composers. And this results in music being weaponized by opposing countries and composers finding themselves pulled into this crushing and painful, often, battle, sometimes with devastating consequences. So, uh, Maestro Mauceri, in this book introduction, you write, Music disappears by silencing it, which can be a result of an overt action or simply by lack of general interest. We are still living in the residue of the last century's dictates and the battles for cultural supremacy that were part of the arsenals of its global wars. So, we'll see how this also ties with film music and specifically on the figure of John Williams. But I first want to ask you, John, so where are we now? Is this war on music still ongoing? Or at least some of these battles have been already won? Well, this is a great question. I think um, your either-or question becomes typical of the way we think. Uh, because it's one or the other. It's a little bit of the latter part. Some of it has been won, but mostly we are exactly where we were before, and it can change. The reason I wrote the book was because uh, I think we could change this in five years, but it requires the principal performers, the people who sell tickets to concerts, not just the artistic administrators, uh, members of the orchestra, of course, but we need our most famous people to sing the operas, to perform the violin concertos, to also view, and the conductors to view this music as part of repertory um, and not save it in a ghetto so that you have live to picture concerts. So people see a, a fairly recent movie. Sometimes it's an older movie like Vertigo. It's so, um, with an orchestra and a great big screen. And that's fine. And I take full responsibility for being one of the people who developed the techniques that make it possible back in the 1990s when it was uh, almost uh, never done and impossible to even figure out how a conductor could synchronize to a screen. Um, but what happened there, was uh, Maurizio, is that it became a, a, a kind of easy solution, which became ultimately a, a commercial enterprise for orchestras. It saved many orchestras, the way the Pops concert saved in America in the 1960s. Um, it saved orchestras because they performed music that people wanted to hear. So it allowed the other repertory to continue its merry way. Uh, and no change over there, and so onward and onward. Then the Pops concert, no one was actually inv investing in it. Like, what what does this mean, this Pops concert? Because I once said, I thought the invention of the Pops concert was the worst idea in the world because it implied two audiences. I mean, don't you want one audience that trusts you so you can play well-thought-out, entertaining, and challenging concerts? So what we found in that period 
was that many uh, famous overtures just dropped out of the repertory. Uh, you know, in the, in the era of Toscanini, for example, so I use an Italian because I'm looking at your face here in Milano. I mean, frequently he ended concerts with overtures. I mean, that, you look at his programs and there'd be an overture. And that wasn't always necessarily Die Meistersinger. You know, the, a lot of the overtures to operettas and to light operas would conclude a concert. That all got turned around so that you begin with an overture, you play a, a concerto, and then you play a serious symphony. So that changed repertory. So hundreds, maybe thousands of works just stopped being played. Whereas in the Pops concerts, as the the audience got more and more separate, uh, in, in at least in our country, and John Williams, by the way, of course, was a conductor of Evening at the Pops. So he became famous in a way, because of these television concerts. But what happened in those concerts? You see, when the pop concert was invented in our country, in, in Boston, basically, those were tripartite concerts. The first third were concert overtures. You know, it'd be... The middle part was a concerto or a movement of a concerto, usually played by a young person who just won a concerto competition, an 18-year-old playing... Rachmaninoff or Beethoven. And then the third third was the most popular contemporary music orchestrated for a symphony orchestra. When we had something in this country called PBS, Public Broadcasting Service, they decided Evening of Pops was just the third third. They did not include one and two. They just went for a soloist who then for one hour sang pop songs with orchestra. America then thought that's what a Pops concert is, whereas the original goal back with the founding of the Boston Symphony in the late 1800s was this was a gateway into classical music. So then what happened was that everyone thinks a Pops concert is have somebody come out and sing a country song with a with an 80-piece orchestra accompanying them, um, the Beatles for orchestra, etc. Now, when that stopped being as viable as it used to be, because people weren't, as I say, investing in it, we had something else. Live to picture happens. So by the 1990s, people were able to see an entire movie with a 90-piece orchestra accompanying it. And those concerts are hugely successful, as everybody knows. They're usually done on one or two rehearsals, therefore very little respect for the music, which is really complicated. And uh, it's done to make money. So you're still ghettoizing the music written for films. You're not playing it as music in a concert and you're not playing it next to Mahler or Strauss or John Adams or anybody else. It's just still separate. So that's why I say it's not exactly, a, the war is not over. And the, the attitude toward Hollywood film music, which is very different, from, say, Soviet film music or British film music or French film. It's a very separate set of criteria used against Hollywood. And that's what I deal with in the book, because that is one of the more shocking revelations I had. So that's a long answer to your question. <laughs> no, but it's actually a perfect answer, because I think that uh, to tie it with what you just said, I mean, the early Hollywood composers all came from Europe, uh, all of them with strong classical background and cut their teeth on opera, ballet, operetta, and music for the concert hall in general. And, and some of them, like 
Korngold, for example, or Max Steiner, were directly under the wings of the great symphonists like Mahler and Strauss. But, but they all studied in their greatest conservatories. As so well, who yes. Was teaching, I mean, who was teaching Tiamkin? The same teacher as with mentoring Prokofiev and Shostakovich. Glazunov, you know, who was yes. teaching Roja in Leipzig. This is why we we suffer because musicologists have not done their job to do the work to teach people by writing the books about who these people actually were. Yes, right? yes. Actually, musicology or, or reevaluation came came later, actually, because uh, also let's not forget that, as you mentioned very brilliantly in the book, and you you go very specifically about that, uh, the two major musical figures of the early part of the twentieth century. Stravinsky and Schoenberg ended up living in Hollywood <laughs> until the end of their lives. And therefore, what we call the Hollywood sound, just, you know, just putting a label on it, is actually the heritage of the classical European and mostly specifically German and Austrian music uh, with yeah. a touch of France and, and some Russia. But and a, little that oregano, tradition. a little oregano, on podi oregano, basilicum. <laughs> yeah, because, because you've got you've got Mario Castelnuovo Tedesco from Florence, right? It was teaching uh, uh, Jerry Goldsmith and teaching Andre Previn and teaching Henry Mancini, and you know, there's that too. So that we shouldn't forget that Montemezzi was living in Los Angeles during World War II. The inter intersection of Italy is also in this also, right? Yes, absolutely. He studied, yeah, Nina Rota studied at Curtis. Right? At Curtis Institute, yes, you're right. And, and, and so, back to another question. So, uh, how we, listeners, historians, conductors, composers, music curators, so how should we treat now, in the 21st century, uh, all this Im immense repertoire, and above all, how should we build a true canon for this repertoire and present it in concert? Because that's what's missing, in my in my opinion. Well, the canon exists. Austin, do you have an idea how to answer that question? Because I'd love to hear if you've got a... I'm, I, I know this is your show, Maurizio, but, but I'd be curious to hear Absolutely. My, my, Let's bring in I mean, Austin. I, I, am, I could listen to... Uh, the maestro here wax poetic on these subjects uh, all day long, so don't don't worry that you're leaving me out of the conversation. I'm happy to have a front row seat to it. I do have strong opinions on this subject. I love the the sort of condemnation that the pops concert is one of the worst inventions in the in the court in the sort of uh, you know concert in the space. history of symphonic music. Yeah, yeah, because you feel that very much when you are programmed, as I have been many times on those kinds of concerts because on the one hand it's it's always very nice to um have your work performed of course but everything that that john was saying is spot on in terms of the extremely narrow rehearsal i mean it's often little more than a read through and even even with that there are certain works that i've seen where they look at it and they go well for the sake of the difficulty of some of these we're going to be sight reading you know this one and this one and this one on the night on the you know when we're when we're out on stage that is going to be the read through um and and you just hope that they've programmed it for a weekend or something so that by the time you get to sunday it's it's a little bit more rehearsed but um but yeah i think there's been this uh 
theory that I think, uh, well, more accurately, we'll call it a, an unproven hypothesis with a lot of these <laughs> concerts that I think is the justification that the programming directors and boards of directors and whatnot have, which is to say, we'll, we'll sort of hook the audience on the basis of a film music night, a John Williams night, a Jerry Goldsmith night, uh, a night of show tunes, that sort of thing, whatever falls under this banner of Pops concerts. And that they'll somehow convert those people into becoming normal subscribers or that they that by by luring them in for the maybe the first time ever to the concert hall to hear music that, as John said, they actually want to hear. Um, they will then feel like, oh, there's been this whole world I've been ignorant to. Next week, I see they're doing, you know, uh, excerpts from Don Giovanni. I, I better come check that out. And I have no I've seen no evidence that that is actually done that way because Again, as John said, it is it is walling off two audiences that have no contact with each other. You don't go to see a video game concert and then find yourself wondering about Beethoven unless something I don't I can't even imagine how that would how that could be done. And I I think that's in a way that's a shame, you know. I'm a I'm obviously very much a composer writing music in 2023, but I have great love for this canon and this the artistic legacy of especially the the orchestral and the symphonic world i mean it's it's an art form that um is is in so many ways a summation of many different art forms and and kind of this beautiful icon of human potential and to see it shoved into these little awkward boxes is is it sort of betrays what i think any composer along the path ever actually was feeling i always feel that way about decorum this is a bit of a tangent but i always feel that way about decorum in concerts as well where when you when you get this feeling of this is meant to be a brutally unfun environment uh <laughs> you, you are not to enjoy like i i'm all for being respectful and i'm all for appreciating much in the same way that if you go to a movie theater it's you shouldn't be an ass <laughs> I, I, I don't <laughs> think that these are unreasonable expectations but at the same time i think a lot of people again this is a tangent because it's it's actually nothing to do with the pop side of it uh, but uh, there's a lot of people that find themselves intimidated because they think, oh, I'm going to do the wrong thing and I'm going to become this little pariah to hundreds of people around me. And I thought, you know, I obviously can't read the thoughts of anybody, much less deceased composers. But it's hard for me to imagine that when Beethoven was sitting there ripping his hair out and banging on his piano, that he was fantasizing about be people being told, sit, be quiet don't say a word the chairs are uncomfortable don't turn the pages of your program it's hard for me to imagine any composer ever fantasizing about a, a sort of a sort of uh, just intentionally severe environment like that and and I, I that's one of those things that i think is also not adding to this problem it, i think that again i'm not advocating this full swing the other direction where there's now a sort of irreverence towards the music or to the extreme talent and discipline it takes to actually pull it off live. Uh, but there must surely be a middle ground <laughs> because I think it is, I think it is just one among many things. It's sort of like death by a thousand cuts. There's a lot of uh, independent, individually manageable variables that are creating this, this war and putting us on our back heel perpetually in it. That's that's a very interesting perspective, I think. And and what you just said made me think about another side of things which I was uh, pondering while preparing this uh, conversation, which is actually how 
often the film repertoire when it's presented in concert uh, is inevitably always associated with the films themselves, of course, because we are talking oftentimes about popular films and, and why and the reason why a new audience or the different audience comes to see and hear those concerts. So I ask this uh, because, you know, often these film or pops even element comes forward so strongly during these so-called film concerts or film nights with either the usage of film clips or maybe even having people doing cosplay and stuff like that, you know. And, and John Williams himself, as Maestro Maceri was telling before, uh, was a kind of a precursor you know, of many of these elements during his years as the Boston Pops principal conductor. You know, you could see often, you know, the guy dressed as C-3PO and R2-D2 coming on the stage. Yeah. So it's now part of the regular concert experience whenever film music and the, and the certain specific film music, like Star Wars, for example, is performed. Again, how much of this is dependent on what's available to perform and how instead film cues can be maybe adapted, rearranged for film concert, for, for concert performance. Because, I mean, there's a huge repertoire of great music that could be performed, but it's never performed. Well, if the, if the, is that maybe your question? Because uh, about the cue, I mean, I heard a lot of things, so I don't know what, what which one to answer. I'm happy to answer. <laughs> yeah, there were so many questions wrapped into a single one. I, yeah, you're right. No, but I mean, uh, how, to put it maybe more simply, how should, yeah, is it possible to present film music in concert taking n not into any consideration the film element yeah. Well, okay, I can I can answer that. So, so, a lot of uh, so-called film composers did make concert works from their film scores. Um, uh, so when I did Psycho for the first time, I found out that Bernard Herrmann had done that and that had never been played. You know, he did it for the London Phase Four recordings, but he didn't live long enough after that to ever perform it. And so, what was being performed were a series of cues. So it took my getting through to Franz Waxman's son, who knew um, Mrs. Herman in London, who made a color photo photocopy of the work her husband did in in the backyard in London, so we could actually do that. And it's now, you know, it's now engraved and it's re releasable. We know that there's some overtures that Korngold made of some of his films for Warner Brothers, um, and Waxman did something for A Place in the Sun. But many times composers were just too busy to, to do that. Now, uh, my job in one way is to imagine as has having been trained as a composer is to take those elements and see if you just, you know, glue them together, what happens. Um, and uh, I'm right now, I have uh, an idea for uh, a triptych based on John Williams score to AI. Now, whether John will say yes or not, I'm not so sure, but but it is clear to me how to do it and that it is in three movements because of the three elements of the screenplay. The question, so it's not all that hard. That's the thing, because the great composers through composed, I mean, it's some, they were all trained the same way. You know, they, they were trained, they were all born within, say, 15 years of each other. That is to say, the founding composers of Hollywood film. Um, so whether they were trained in, in Leipzig or in St. Petersburg or in Vienna, 
the fundamental issue of counterpoint and structure and recapitulation and variation and development is just fundamentally how they were taught. Um, and by the way, all of them were the number one students of their class. Um, and that's what makes this so particularly interesting. I mean, they were geniuses. They were as good as anybody. So then the question comes to what, well, what do you do with that? Well, I find that I happen to have a weird talent because people have trusted me with this, whether it's Cleopatra of Alex North or, or whether it's Mrs. Herman or whether it's Mrs. Tiamkin, that you look at the material, it, it speaks to you. You know, Mahler would frequently say that the music, the material started to create the own, his own, the structure. It was, it, anybody who writes a book, you know, a novel knows that at some point the characters start to tell you its own story. <laughs> so in, in the case of a good example in my life was uh, I went to John Waxman. I said, you know, your dad's music to uh, Sunset Boulevard is basically not available. Let, let me work on it. So he sent me the complete scores. And I started to look at what was there. And there's obviously a theme at the beginning, which is a chase. And then we hear the music of Norma Desmond, which is a tango. Then we hear the chase again. Then we hear the music for Joe Gillis, who is dead at the beginning of that movie. So his theme emerges from harmonics, and then it becomes a kind of a very you know hip 1951 uh, uh, kind of boogie-woogie thing. Well, okay, so those are his elements. Now, because of the, his training, what happens then is a series of variations and developments on those themes. And then at the end, shortly before Norma shoots him, the, the the theme of the chase comes in at half speed, like some predatory monster. So we begin a recapitulation and both of the other themes then come in at the end. So we actually hear at the very end, a, an atonal version of the tango at the beginning. So what was that? It was a sonata. It was a sonata, but with three elements, not two elements. So all I did was, you know, like Frankenstein, I would just stitch them together. I took some things out, of course, but I I didn't change a note. I mean, I literally, when I do this work, I don't, you know, make, a, a, you know, a new orchestration. And you know, I, I give you what's there. So again, with uh, The Adventures of Robin Hood, for example, Eric Korngold made a four-movement little symphonietta, and he did it for an orchestra in Oakland that was not anywhere near as good as the Warner Brothers Orchestra. So he simplified it and it's 16 minutes long and it's in four movements. And that's all that was ever available from the adventures of Robin Hood. So with permission from the family, uh, I got the big score and I went, okay, well we can use what Horngold did, but we can now restore its complexity and also tell a story. So that piece um, is again, the music that Eric Korngold wrote with the orchestrations that he conducted. Um, so again, you just need someone to do the work who will do something with respect and authenticity because we don't need more, you know, hit themes from movies. You know, that that would be, if you treated so-called classical music that way, you could have a Beethoven night with great themes by Beethoven. So you could start <laughs> with da-da-da-dum. In fact, you know, when Jimmy Levine conducted Fantasia 2000, the Beethoven part, which was meant to, I guess, replace the Beethoven six that Stokowski did. It's just the first movement with the development section taken out. I mean, it, it you know, the respect for Beethoven, it was just like, let's just do tunes. You would never do that with classical music, but you we do that all the time with so-called film music. 
I and uh, and Mauricio, it's not really. It's never been about movie music. It's never really been about Hollywood movie music. It's been about something else, and that something else is why in my book it became uh, obvious to me that what was happening was a result of the reaction to World War II. Because all of those founding composers were on Hitler's list, right? All of them, you, whether it's Roja or, or it's Branislav Kapper or whether it's you know, just the, who they are, right? So let's just, let's face that. And why do we, why do we think it's okay? Why do we think it's okay that Shostakovich or Prokofiev wrote movie music and we play Lieutenant Kija and we go, oh, that's not fine. We play th their music for, for movies, but we have we do not play, you know, anything from Ben-Hur or anything from, you know, it's, it's a very different set of criteria. You know, you have to, in a way, find a tremendous empathy for the Germans and Austrians and Italians who survived World War II and the shame and the guilt and just the deprivation of who lived I mean, we spend a lot of time, and correctly, mourning the dead. But let's take a moment about the living. Let's just talk whether or not they fought in the war or they just looked down, they tried to get through their lives. Now, what do you do in Italy, for example, when, when you've had operas that have only been played during the Mussolini period, and now Mussolini is dead? Now, if you play that music, are you saying that you are pre, you're pro-fascist? So you can't play it anymore. So suddenly you take an entire genre that Italy invented, right? Italy invents opera, and then it cuts off opera in 1924 with Turandot because Mussolini is now Duce, and now at least Puccini died, so we only have two pictures of you know Giacomo and Benito you know, to, with their arms around each other. But I wonder, I, I suggest this in my book, if Puccini had lived a normal lifespan, and not died on an operating table in Brussels because of a bad operation using radium on his throat, and he had lived it to 1940, which he could have, would we be still, would we be playing La Boheme now? Because if you think about all the other composers that outlived him, we don't play, we play maybe 1% of those operas. And that's just Italy, right? So, so La Scala can open with Samstag aus Licht by, you know, as a, to open Scala after the war because nobody would confuse that with fascist period music, right? <laughs> right. But neither does anybody like it, but it's safe. Yes. So you do a new production of Aida or Rigoletto and then you do Samstag aus Licht. Now in, in Germany, if we were to accept the, the idea that modern music was part of the future, then you'd have to explain to me why half of Germany played only modern, modern music at Darmstadt and all these festivals that were supported by the CIA, but East Germany did not. So if it's a German thing, how come there are two Germans, yes. two kinds of German music after World War II? It's all based on emotional response to that war. And you, you have to find forgiveness and understanding if you know that Boulez, you know was in 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 france when the nazis marched into france you have to understand that that someone like stockhausen was was living 
from the time he was 13 years old, his city of Cologne was being carpet bombed by the British every day for most of his young life. His mother was killed by the Nazis. So what kind of music does he write? Zanakis, you know, had part of his face blown off in Athens. So when they become young men who write music, of course, they they recreate the sound, the chaotic sound, but this time they create systems to control it. It's like a little boy trying to understand this terrible thing that they don't even understand, but now I'm going to control it. I'm not going to write a big, beautiful tune because that just seems impossible. But I will take the noise element, the highly dissonant sounds, and write, make systems to create it. Okay, I buy that. God bless them that they turned that pain, that wound into music. But for some reason, we all, and there are a lot of reasons, again, in the book, that we made that the official language of classical music. And so we threw out all these composers who didn't do that. And so, again, it's not just movie music, right? It's, it's this entire repertory that links 1930 to 2023. Now, this is where John Williams can really help us, because he's the epitome of that tradition, that tradition, that 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 strange line that goes out of out of Western Europe and is transplanted in Los Angeles because of the war and because of racism and anti-Semitism, and continues right now till today with John and with almost every other composer, because it's a global language, right? It's a global. It's not a European language anymore. Absolutely. Film, yeah. film music yeah. brought brought that language of music to the entire world. You can't erase it. It's on the celluloid. It's there, right? So that's that's where that takes us to today and how we can connect this place to where we are today. And orchestras can play that music, not as separate movie nights, not as showing a screen, but playing the music. There's a little thing I, I thought I would interject uh, in there in that it was, you know, amazing kind of summary of how we got here. And I can tell you as a student navigating that it was not the most fun environment. Uh, even 20 years ago into the earliest days of the 21st century, there's still so much holdover from from that thinking. But um, uh, I, I will say I once came across a quote from John Corleano, where he, he also added an additional wrinkle that I that I, I don't know how kind of provable this is, but I've always thought it seemed very plausible, sort of as an additional layer on everything that you just said. He also added that because World Wars One and Two represented the height of of uh, nationalism and the ten, and and what nationalism can lead to, that the the modern systems that were being developed were not just a visceral kind of emotional response to the literal horror of the war but by virtue of creating something almost in a lab devoid of of its sort of like historical lineage tracing out of folk traditions and things like that it was also nationalistically neutral and that you would you would have something that is a rejection of the nationalism that would create a nazi party and a and a you know a Maoist China and a Soviet a Stalinist Russia you you know the idea of ours are the chosen people and we're going to bulldoze anybody on this planet who dare get in our way they they hatched a scheme to develop a music that is incapable of being co-opted in that way um, and whether that was a deliberate conscious thought or not ever since I heard him make that claim I thought 
that feel, you know, especially for so many of these people living, as you just said, John, these are people that lived the direct consequences of this war. It makes total sense that part of their coping mechanism would be a rejection of this nationalism. I'm right with I'm right with John Corigliano on that because that was other thing that made this thing so popular. You could not really tell, you know, serial music from France from serial music from Italy, right? You could you. <laughs> yeah. It became a, a brave new language for a brave new world. The fact, however, that that music confronts the way we hear and is really fundamentally based on theories that come from 1909 with the Manifesto del Futurismo, which comes from Italy and 1909, right? Yes. It's 199, right? Yes. And then we have just before World War One, we've got Piero Lunaire, we've got Sacre du Printemps, we, and we also have Orusolo with his noise music. I mean, he, there's a manifesto of noise. And so what happens? We have World War One. And when and those composers who went to war, as you as you said, Austin, who, you know, Schoenberg saying what Schoenberg said about wiping out the kitchmongers in Paris, or what what Ravel had to say about getting into a, a he, he was too tiny to get into a uniform. So he learned how to drive and he had a truck that went back, you know, to bring arms and, and munitions and medicine to to soldiers. And Debussy said he would stand at at his at his, at the gate of his house if he could if if the if the Germans came in. It was a war, a cultural war. So this is very 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 true. However, you know, separate from all of that, and it, and by the way, and this I think is really important, since Mussolini, and Hitler, and Stalin all banned atonal music. They called it different things. You know, if formulistic was what Stalin and the Russians used, meaning it used a formula to make the sound. You know, the brutalismo period, the Mussolini, at first he thought we're going to be modern. And then he realized that Italians hated this music. So to unite Italy, you, you couldn't have that music. But also with, with Hitler, he looked at Schoenberg as being a Jew who was going to destroy culture. So with it, with this music being outlawed by the fascists, by the Nazis, and by the Soviets, there's something really weird happens when the war is over. Because when World War II is over, Stalin is still alive. Right? That's significant. Most people, are, so Mussolini's dead, Hitler's dead. If you could prove to the allies who won that you, as a composer, you wrote non-tonal music during the war, that meant you were not a Nazi. That meant you were not a fascist. And that meant you were anti-communist. So this language, which may have been international and didn't sound German, didn't sound Italian, the other thing that supported it was that naively it was anti-Nazi music, anti-Soviet music, and anti-fascist music. Yeah. So everybody gets gets to win that one. And that's really a fantastic when I realized that, I went, of course, that explains why the universities in America were teaching that, too. And why the CIA, look, who was rebuilding the radio stations? Who was making Rai, uh, it, it, all the radio stations in Italy, work after the war? Who had any money? Well, only one place, right? Who was making the Westdeutsche Rundfunk work? Who was, And what were they playing? What was happening at the Radio Diffusion Francaise? Who was the paying for it? And what could they broadcast? So they're broadcasting the future, the new music, and Beethoven and Verdi. And, you know, so the, the space gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And if I played for you now, 
1951. When I do a lecture, I, this is kind of shocking and incredible. You play in 1951. You play the finale to Beethoven's Nine for the opening of Bayreuth. So it's Fort Fengler and all the Nazis playing Beethoven Nine, and people go crazy. Then you play Boulez, 1951, same year, and you play one of those first incredibly complex and unpleasant pieces of music. But then if you play Kachaturian's um, score from the, the great Adagio from, from Spartacus, and you hear this tune that everybody just loves, and you play it for people in 2023, you see the whole audience do that, and you say, but what does that sound like? It sounds like movie music. Yes. So the Soviet music and the Hollywood music can equally be flushed down the toilet of the West because that's the Russians, that's the Soviets, that's the godless Russians, and that's Hollywood where they do it for the money and they just steal from each other. So, <laughs> so a lot of things came into that. My point here, if excuse me, but you know, I'm very passionate about this. Yeah, no. That seven look, that was 70 years ago. That was 75 years ago. That was eight, that whatever. We don't have to do that anymore. You know, Maurizio, you didn't make World War II happen. You didn't make the call. I didn't. I mean, I was born and the war is over. Now it's time for us to look at this, understand with empathy, and then sew it back together. And we can sew it back together again. But as you point out, Austin. You, your music is going to be categorized into a pops concert. Who is making that decision? Who is running the interior, the you know, inside the the French radio? Who is making the decisions in German radio? Who's making decisions at Radio Italiana? These are the probably the same people who were trained to make these separate decisions, and so it's hard for them to embrace. A new reality. I, I want to bring, I want to, sorry to interrupt, but I want to bring you a point which actually happened actually a few days ago here in Milan. Every year, since now it's now 10 years, a 10 years tradition that started in, I think, 2013, every start of the summer, the Philharmonica della Scala Orchestra plays a huge open air free concert for the city of Milan. And every year is usually a program of pretty traditional classical music. This year, principal conductor Ricardo Chailly made an interesting choice, made a choice of playing mostly arias from Italian operas. You know, very popular, and they played, you know, pieces from Aida and La Traviata, and then this ended with a piece from, uh, from Tosca from, by Puccini. And then the encore started, and do you know what they played? The love theme from Superman. <laughs> and then the march from Superman and the audience went crazy really yeah. so I saw that as a sign of wait maybe things are starting really to change yeah, isn't, that, isn't that sad it, but isn't that sad <laughs> that Ricardo Chai dipped his little toe into the into the water into the poisonous water of yeah uh yeah well there it is i mean we we grasp at these straws but what would happen if you know that concert or wh what would happen if on new year's eve in vienna there was a concert called valsa aus america wh why not show how the waltz stops in in europe but continues on way through the rest of the 20th century with with Steiner and Korngold and Roja, and then yes. onward and forward. What a great concert that would be. And actually, 
waltzes were written in America before there was World War II because our first teachers were German and Italian. Who do you think taught us music, right? It, you know, and when people say, oh, well, you know, this great German conductor conducts uh, Beethoven because he feels this, the, you know, the history every day and the water he drinks, you know, in Berlin. And you go, but wait a minute. All of our orchestras were all created at the same time. I mean, we built our concert halls, Carnegie Hall, the same time that we're happening in Europe. And why? Because our conductors and our trained musicians were all trained by Europeans. So we're, it's always been an extension, right? It's still, so, so yeah. And, you know, the other thing that I do is when I play, you know, excerpts from the, what I call the found, the patriarchs, the, the seven composers who actually created what we call the sound of Hollywood, because think about this. Sound film becomes a reality around 1927, 1928. By 1933, they're able to synchronize underscoring with dialogue and, and, and you know, sound effects and the movie. Well, what happens in 1933? Hitler comes to power. He makes it impossible for a Jewish composer to make a living. King Kong happens with Steiner in 1933. It shows the world that you can play music under dialogue and it makes a pretty mediocre movie into a gigantic hit. So suddenly every studio needs to have composers. Hitler closes it, Hollywood opens it. No wonder they came here. No wonder the, the greatest ones are the ones who have success, right? This makes sense. It, it, it's, you know, you know about phylloxera? Do you know what that is? Nope. Well, that that was a disease that uh, that was killing all of the grape vines of Europe. Mm. There was there was a terrible crisis where it looked like the entire wine industry in Europe was going to be wiped out. Somebody realized that our grapes here in America that you could take a clipping of the top of the grape plant and mm. put it onto the 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 roots of our grapes. And you would have now grapes that were now immune to this disease. So all of the grapes right now in Europe that make the most important wines in the world are basically sitting on the roots of American grapes. So we have always had this back and forth. Yes. So if you it's think pretty about natural, it, yes, yes. Uh, and it's music, ladies and gentlemen. We hear it. If we like it, we want to repeat it. If we don't, we don't want to hear it. I was going to uh, interject a couple of thoughts. Uh, I think when when you were talking about, you know, how sort of equal parts wonderful and pathetic it is that we celebrate that sort of token inclusion of something like Superman, that it feels like such a victory, you know, and sort of that is its own, that is its own depressing fact, even while yes. feeling like a victory. Um, I do think while you sir are ahead of your sort of contemporaries i i am seeing a bit of a of a generational shift in and the whole top to bottom within the sort of symphonic world because you have i keep meeting young horn players where you know that binary sunset in star wars is why they picked up the horn as a kid yes. and it took it took time for that to settle in but those those moments you know violinists who heard Schindler's List, that sort of thing are percolating into, and I've even spoken, you know, with conductors who will reach out to me and call me about uh, programming my music and we'll just start, 
you know, shooting the breeze and, and they'll tell me, oh, well, I'm traveling. I have a guest engagement in this city. So I'm, I'm living by the, by the, uh, I, I'm surviving uh, by bringing my switch along with me or something like that. And I realized there's a whole, there's a whole young uh, sort of group of gamer conductors and musicians in these orchestras as well uh, that are um, uh, like I, a perfect example of this. I have a friend who, who plays with uh, pretty regularly with pretty much every orchestra. She's a superb English horn and, and oboist, and she plays and she lives in South Florida. And so she ends up playing with just about every orchestra up and down the coast. And she had inevitably, uh, she was, she's an English horn specialist. So quite a lot of her concerts consist of 97 bars of rest, followed by uh, her one little moment and then back to the, back to the resting. So she took a photo during a rehearsal of her, of her Nintendo Switch on the stand with the brand new Zelda game on there. And she said, I'm sure the maestro won't mind because you could see a wall of rests on the parts next to it. And of course, you know, Twitter, you know, got very excited and it kind of went viral. And, and it's one of those funny moments where you're seeing, you know, more and more of these sort of younger uh, musicians are, are eager for it, where the actual, inter whereas, whereas I've worked with many orchestras, I'll never forget an experience I once had where I was invited to take part with a few other composers in, in dipping in and out in a, in a kind of round robin guest conducting at Wolf Trap with the National Symphony. And it was, of course, a concert of all video game music and the place was packed and it was full of families and everybody was loving it. And and um, and I remember we uh, the concert was over and we came out to collectively take our bows, I and the other guests. And I bowed and I turned around to to uh, acknowledge the orchestra and they weren't even on the stage. They had cleared the stage while we were taking our bow. And I'm willing to give some benefit of the doubt that there was an AFM representative saying if they don't clear the stage, we're in overtime and that this was actually done for the sake of the budget. But they, as an orchestra, did not enjoy this concert. They made it very known to us uh, that they did not want to be playing this music. They did not like that the audience was cheering and clapping. And and there was there was a, a real opposition to what we were doing internally. And and but but there's kind of it's like it's like geological stratigraphy once once you go below a certain age of musician that attitude falls off rather quickly and so i that's where i put a lot of hope because even with the extreme talent of many of these musicians there is that gatekeeping sensibility of this is not um this is not uh, uh, uh the, the proper use of our of our talents and our time and Another thought unrelated to that that came to mind when we were it's 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 tangentially related to your story about La Scala and the open air concert as well, but it's sort of a bit different. Something that I've found that I think also I'm, I'm sure uh, you have truly uncountable number of stories validating this, John, but there I've 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 seen that one of the failings, I think, institutionally of the symphonic world has been that, you know, they 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 write often a very clinical and uninteresting little paragraph in the program notes and then they leave the general story in the context of the music that's being presented to that and 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 nothing else and so you never get any sense of who these people were the situation in which they're operating because i think fundamentally human beings can enjoy literally anything the harshest of atonal nationalistically devoid of history music in the world when it's framed like and perfect example since you mentioned Zanakis and his fact that he took you know shrapnel to the face I, I I my um 
My girlfriend Angela and I went to a concert the other day of all Zanakis tape music. Now this couldn't be far, she, she normally listens to Pink Floyd and the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. And so going, I said, now I wanna, I wanna, I wanna give you a setup of why this is the way it is and also give you a sense of in the 60s and 70s, this new frontier of music where the medium moved away from acoustic performance and people realized there was a whole new playground in which to explore. And there were a lot of threads that came together at once. And so the whole drive down to the venue, I was talking to her about, about Xenakis and about the, what was going on at that time period and his history and all that. And then we sat through an hour and 15 minutes of grating, violent, multi-channel tape music. And she came out of it full of thoughts and ideas and was, and, and the story had made it, it actually enthralled. Now it's not a thing you're going to go put on while you, you know, relax on a Saturday afternoon or something like that, but it, 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 it found a way in, you know, and I, I, I think that anytime you tell a story, one of the best concerts I've ever been a beneficiary of was the American Youth Symphony at Royce Hall decided to invite me and two other composers to perform some, they wanted to perform some of our game music. And they asked each of us, what is a piece from the repertoire that is inspirational to you? And then they performed them as pairs. So it was, you know, all three composers were invited and we got to come up on stage and do a bit of a discussion with the audience. And then it was, okay, why did you pick this piece? So I chose the 4C interludes. And it was, we're going to play a little bit of Journey, and we're going to do a little bit of this concert suite from, from Peter Grimes. And that's a piece that the audience may not have heard, and the juxtaposition for sure was something, I had never heard that before, of my music with that particular piece. One other composer had done this uh, kind of gothic horror game and chose to pair it with the Firebird suite. And, and I it gave a story for the audience where they they got something that oh I see a flashy Sony PlayStation logo on the on the concert but it was actually you know seriously rehearsed and and performed concert repertoire in tandem with it and I remember thinking and there was no apologies about it there was no there was no sense of oh we're we want to sneak in the vegetables or like hiding the pill in the dog treat kind of idea it was really just here's music and and composers are themselves reacting to the repertoire it was lovely if i may i may see your this is exactly the kind of programming that i'm talking about so this is exactly right it's about continuity because audiences are smart so if it were an all austin wintry concert that's easy but to put austin next to benjamin Britten, and that becomes really interesting now for seven years i did this at the gavant house and when we started, because of what you're talking about now, it, it's it's been a whole story for me. I mean, I have orchestras that actually hated the fact that I was bringing film music to them. The Israel Philharmonic had no idea that all those composers were Jews. You know, I had, I had to ask me a question. Waxman, I didn't know he was a composer. I thought he just made that arrangement of Carmen. That's that's Tel Aviv, right? Right. So that's mind blowing. Yeah. And and I'm in Atlanta. And the Atlanta Symphony, and I'm doing, you know, 20 minutes from Ben Hur. I'm doing the big piece from Sunset Boulevard. I'm getting et cetera. And my wife is sitting in the balcony, and a woman comes in and sits down, and there's no program. So my wife lends the program, and the woman looks at it and hands the program back to my wife and says, "We've just come back from a strike, and I didn't come here to be entertained." 
Mm. Now, I didn't come here to be entertained. <laughs> was almost going to be the title of my book. Like, what, uh, what did she come for? Right. So, so yeah. So in, in the in the time I was with Gavant House, I would put Wagner with Mahler with Korngold with John Williams with, and you know when I first started and I did the big piece from Psycho in 1992, I guess it was because I think I had restored it then. The entire audience in Leipzig, two nights sold out, had never seen Psycho. Right, because they went from Nazi Germany to communist Germany. Now it's just a year and a half after the wall fell, and they haven't seen these movies. They just heard Bernard Herrmann's amazing score for string orchestra, you know, 20 minutes with the Gavant House Orchestra, whose guest conductors included Mozart. Um, and they gave it a huge ovation. They weren't seeing a shower scene and, and nervously laughing. They just heard music. So one of the earlier parts of what you said, Austin, was, yeah, sometimes you can link this with your physical experience of seeing a movie, and sometimes you can just hear it. If you, I mean, half of the movies that Korngold wrote his masterpieces for are not movies that anybody sees anymore. Anthony Adverse, I mean, The Constant Nymph, these are not movies that everybody knows. I mean, they barely know The Adventures of Robin Hood. So the next phase, by the way, is that composers' names have to get known. Right. I mean, those composers went to work. They did not promote themselves. I mean, Tiamkin was the only one who had a press agent. But unlike Aaron Copeland or Leonard Bernstein, whose names are on the sheet music and, you know, it's it's bang, it's right there. Korngold went to work. He wrote. He didn't expect the music to be played. He was waiting for Hitler to die so he could go back to writing a violin concerto in the symphony. Roja just went to work. They didn't, you know, they had their concert work sometimes, but mostly they didn't care so we have to help educate the audience but at the same time if if we don't continue to play this music and play it next to i mean i love what you just said that story about choosing music that inspired you you know i only recently learned that it was um bernard herman's score to um uh what was it uh one of his scores that inspired stephen sondheim to write sweeney todd he gave Bernard Herrmann, uh, you know, the credit. And same thing for Danny Elfman. The second movement of Danny Elfman's violin concerto is a total homage to the opening of Vertigo. So this is the kind, this is called continuity. Also, so they, I've always loved the George Martin string arrangement for um, the uh, uh, Eleanor Rigby was also directly inspired by Bernard Herrmann after yes. seeing Psycho. Yes. There you go. So, so this is really the where music really lives, and it's not in these categories. The only yes. category is we hear it, and we're mimics. We like it, and we want to hear it again. And if we're creative, we want to write it, and we want to have it inspire us. And since we're bad mimics, you know, we're 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 in we're in, imperfect. If we were perfect mimics, then we'd all be speaking Latin or we'd be speaking Arabic. But rather, all these languages are kind of mishmashes of kind of hearing it and getting it kind of right and getting it kind of wrong. But certain, but the musical language that emerges in in Europe is also a mishmash. I mean, it's it's. I like to use the the example of the Silk Road. The Silk Road is a perfectly good example. How long did it take to get the, the, the silk from, from the center of China all the way to, say, Venice and then get it up to Queen Elizabeth I? And, and, and in, that, in that years of carrying silk, crossing deserts and mountains, 
Other people come in, they're playing drums, they're playing something that looks like a flute, they're singing songs. By the time they get to what we call Italy, they're now hearing music from Rome. Now, what is music from Rome? Well, that's something that happened from the Roman Empire. So there's some Egyptian, there's some Ethiopian, there's some Etruscan, who knows? <laughs> then, then when they get paid for the silk, they go back for another couple of years and get to the silk, you know, the silkworm sitting in the mulberry trees. What is music then? What is Roman music? What is Chinese music? It's all one thing. And if you don't like it, you don't repeat it. And if you do like it, you do repeat it. So if Debussy is sitting at the at the pavilion for, for the people from Java, and he's sitting there for a week while the gamelan is being played in the 1890s, and then he writes La Mer, is that French music? Is that Javanese music? Is it What is it? It's music, ladies and gentlemen. It's just music. Yeah, yeah, totally true. And I think also this uh, trying to tie back to, to, to John Williams and, and his music. I mean, uh, it, it certainly, as Austin was saying, his music has inspired at least now two generations of, of listeners, musicians. And, you know, as he said, how many French horn players now, members of the greatest symphonies, uh, owe their passion to the first time they heard the Princess Leia theme or or the Binary Sunset. I mean, and I want to talk, to ask you, uh, Austin, how inescapable is John Williams' influence for someone who writes music for media today? I mean, are we already living in a post-John Williams world from a musical standpoint? And, and I'm, I'm asking this to give you a, a little bit more context uh, because lots of current film composers, including many whom I talked to, um, told me that today it's not easy to write in a John Williams style because, you know, film producers nowadays seems to prefer something that is quite removed from that side, but also because the current methodologies don't, don't allow to write in the way John still does. I mean, so you have found a way of your own in this regard? Yeah, well, so... There's a lot of potential ways to attack that question. Uh, I I do have a soft spot for those composers who are sort of fighting the fight to uphold that tradition that Williams is part of, because it is, it feels melodramatic to call it dying, but it is a very particular thing. You know, I, I, I have this little pedantic spiel where I differentiate between what I call orchestral music and symphonic music. Like Hans Zimmer writes orchestral music, John Williams writes symphonic music, you know, James Horner wrote symphonic music. The, the composers who, who use the orchestra and they lean into the sort of traditional sort of late romantic lineup of instruments and, and, and they see them almost like a troupe of actors playing to the strengths that their casting would suggest. And so it's, it's not... You can be experimental within those parameters, but it is not broadly an experimental approach. You know, Goldsmith, sort of my all-time hero, was far more experimental. There was no given orchestral lineup, uh, even when he was writing orchestral music. Uh, Herman also very, you know, he 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 knew how to write for the orchestra better than than most, but I would not really call his music symphonic most of the time because he was always playing with the formula in in just spectacular wonderful ways but i but i'd love one of the things that i love about the that tradition that sort of late romantic tradition that as john said sort of did this leapfrog over europe uh in the in the mid 20th century and landed in in la 
um, and which Williams and and and, and many others uh, kind of worked to have worked to uphold through till today, um, is that in so many respects it it speaks to this love of music as this abstract form. So exper when you're really experimental, you listen to Patton, for example. One of the things that makes that so evocative is Goldsmith's use of this trumpets playing into an echoplex and you get this kind of reverberant reincarnation through history idea. And it's so much about the sound of these fifths playing a little third, uh, you know, going through the, the machinations of the way the echoplex works. Whereas Williams, there's not really tricks or gimmicks. Uh, you, it's, are the notes good? Do the actual raw abstract material speak? And there's something, I have a soft spot for that. I just did a, an event the other day with a friend and colleague of mine, Bear McCreary, where he set out to make his score to the new Lord of the Rings show that kind of work, where he said, this isn't going to be about cool synth design or merging strange instruments into the orchestra. It was, can this be thematic and can it be about thematic development because he had to write nine hours of music in nine months so he said this needs to be about the notes on the page and, and in a sense nothing more and so we did a whole event together where I, I opened it by saying he is actually upholding this that you know that that tradition yes. that that Williams picked up and ran with that he got from the the corn golds and the waxmans and the steiners who were who were looking at it and it was less about the gimmick of a really cool sound and just saying, how do we write the, the right notes on the page? And there's a real special discipline. It's it's like um, Gloria Chang did this this wonderful uh, uh, program a few years ago called Montage that I imagine you're familiar with, where she took six so-called film composers and had them all. She commissioned all of them to write solo piano works, and it was with John Williams and Don Davis and Bruce Broughton and Alexander Desplat, Michael Giacchino, uh, Randy Newman. And they all echoed the same sentiment. They, they were all paralyzed with fear. Well, not not Williams, but certainly like Giacchino made a point of saying this was a terrifying exercise because his normal comfort zone of, of being able to hide behind all the bells and whistles of production and sounds and were gone. And now there was this paralyzing nakedness that a solo piano concert work imposes on you. And, and I love that. I love this idea that the notes, if the notes don't count, you know, or I should say, all that counts is the notes, and you and you cannot gussy it up with anything else. So it's it's sort of it's sort of the symphonic tradition in its most extreme sort of uh, uh, exercise. I love that. So to your actual question, all of that is, in a sense, I apologize, kind of a preface because <laughs> I do, in my heart, relate to that experimental. Uh, fervor of a, of a goldsmith and a Herman more than all, even though I have this undying respect and occasionally a project comes along where it really is the right approach to say, let's try to forego all bells and whistles and just embrace what are the, what are truly the right notes and, and any sense of experimental sound world uh, needs to be sort of will be distracting in this particular context. But those jobs are few and far between in particular because uh, directors, Music, directors and, and executives and producers, their musical taste is often shaped by what is the most successful uh, and, and casting the longest cultural shadow. Well, today that's undeniably Hans Zimmer by a mile. As much as John Williams is held up in, in tremendous reverence by everybody. I mean, nobody doesn't sort of worship the ground he walks on, so to speak. But Hans Zimmer is the one who is defining the, the kind of 
taste. And when you have people controlling the purse strings, that is uh, inevitably going to be part of the assumption about what one is asked to do. Uh, but it is not a binary. I mean, there are many, many yes. composers who who fluidly, you know, can 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 drift back and forth. And you know, I look at composers like Ludwig Göransson and Dan Pemberton, uh, John Powell, who have very comfortable command over traditional symphonic writing, but they're also able to do what's what's needed. And in games, it's even more eclectic. I mean, I was just last night talking with a colleague of mine, Gordy Hab who at this point has written more John Williams-esque Star Wars music than John Williams has uh, by quite a wide margin. And he's, you know, they're Abbey Road sessions with the London Symphony Orchestra. And he is, he writes it even by hand because he said, I want to, if I'm being tasked to write a Star Wars video game and it's supposed to be a faithful homage and recreation of Williams aesthetic, that needs to start at the genetic level. So he quite literally writes by hand despite having a whole computer set up like all the rest of us. And he has done tremendously in in writing faithfully in that way and giving the musicians real parts to play and you know making sure that the viola and english horn can't can't be caught sleeping or with their nintendo switch on their on their uh on their uh stand during rehearsals what you're basically saying uh austin is that it's alive and well and it's not it's not a john williams thing it's the way we tell dramatic stories. In other words, there are themes for characters. So when you write music to a video game, there's going to be music for when you succeed and music for when you fail, music for when you're in a stressful situation. And as you pointed out to me many times, the player of the game becomes a co-performer, a co-creator, because no two performances, as it were, of your music will ever be the same twice. And so this creates, this is what I call the actual avant-garde now, because in music, there's never been such a thing. So if you would take Beethoven's fifth and Beethoven were take were using his two themes for the first movement for a video game, you'd have the da-da-da-dum for the challenge and you'd have da 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 dee da da when you got when you were successful but you'd have to be able to play da 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 and you're on level one and now we're at the next challenge which so but the point is the way people perceive music over a long period of time dramatic music is something that Wagner understood and that's why that line goes all the way through this and I I wanted to add to you that in 1988 um, between the dress rehearsal and opening night of Candide in Glasgow, where I had produced this last version of Candide and Leonard Bernstein came and he came to the dress rehearsal and there was a day between the dress rehearsal and opening night. So I drove him and his sister up to Loch Lomond. So we're driving, I'm on the left side of the road and I'm doing really well. And what am I playing? I'm playing an extended suite from Gone with the Wind because uh, Charles Gerhardt recorded this extended suite and Leonard Bernstein had not heard Gone with the Wind since probably 1939. And he may have watched it on television, but he, you know, he watched it and he was a teenager. And so he's screaming in the car. He remembered every, oh, there's that, that there's, the, oh, I love this. And I said to him, you know, Lenny, I'm pretty sure that the public came to love Mahler in the 1960s because he was always available to be played. But in the 1960s, when you were first conducting his symphonies, that the public came to love Mahler because they had grown up listening to Steiner and listening to Korngold. And Lenny said, why do you think I conducted? 
<laughs> this is one of the great moments where Lenny admitted that he conducted Mahler because it reminded him of Steiner. It reminded wow. him of the experience he had in going to the movies. So this ever-developing language of music is always going to be there. The, the revolution idea about music is nonsense. I mean, it makes a certain amount of sense. Somebody does something really new. But, you know, electronic music of Zanakis, well, that was that was happening in France just after the end of World War II with the radio, with the French radio, because they were broadcasting, you know, anti-Nazi stuff. And then they were playing musique concrète at that point. All of this stuff has been available to us. The idea of noise as an element in music is something that was being proffered in 1913 in Italy, of, of all places. I mean, that's one of the most avant-garde places of all time. But fundamentally, people love melody. People will, will be happy to put a little more spice in your stew, but if the spice overwhelms the, the pasta sauce, you're just, you know, going to cough, you know, <laughs> enjoy <laughs> as simple as that. So the great thing about this language that has been created by the entire world, which was taken to the entire world, accelerated through sound film. Because that's what accelerated it. Normally, a, a ship would have to arrive at Rio de Janeiro with Brazilian music, whatever that was. And then the people who were there in Rio were playing what they were playing and they heard it back and forth. But you accelerate this by having sound film. So you, any place that has electricity hears this music. And that music is teaching what is hopeful, what is scary, what is uplifting, what is religious, what is sexy, what all the whole language that is being developed and they add it so you have a japanese composer adding with with the uh, godzilla they add to the king kong ideas and then you've got people from from doing bossa nova and adding. you've got you know so you've got the entire world adding to this thing mm -hmm. and that's continuing development so if you tell me that someone's writing in the style of John, respecting him with the Star Wars video game. Of course, that's right. But Danny Elfman, believe me, he's always thinking of themes for these characters, just as Wagner did with Siegfried, Brunhilde, and Hagen. It's it's the genius of how the mind works in telling long-form music. You can change the notes because there's an infinite number of possibilities of intervals for any theme, but it'll if it seems appropriate, it'll happen. If you play it, for four grand pianos and a trumpet, you know, you take Jerry Goldsmith, perfect idea. But why did he do that? He did that because he had no idea what he was going to write. And he's walking through that, you know, that room, that story that Jerry told me. He's walking through a room and says, well, what are you planning on scoring the movie for? He said, oh, well, four grand pianos and a trumpet, because that's what he saw. But he was such a genius that he could do that, right? He could absolutely do that. And, and you look work. at Jerry and two visions of the future. One is Star Trek. The other is Planet of the Apes. What? This is the same guy, right? This is the same guy. He because he found the right language. And John, let's not let's not forget that John writes jazz and you know, catch me if you can. You think about the scores and how he, you know, he may not do this, but he does a lot of that. And he's still, you know, I didn't even want to use the word still. He's an inspiration, but he is right now the culmination of that language. There are many way younger than him who are continuing this. And who knows what they're going to do tomorrow? Because that's the joy of this. It's an unending story. Mm -hmm. And our, my job is just to remind people that you need to link, respect these people. Restore the respect that was taken from them after the war. 
You know, you, I still feel it from John Waxman. I feel it from Katie Korngold. I feel it from Leslie Korngold. I mean, from from yes, from from the Korngolds, but also from Le, Les Schoenberg, you know, La, La, Larry Schoenberg. They have so suffered for their parents and their grandparents, and how they suffered after World War II. How their career, their genius, was completely obliterated, turned into something embarrassing for them that they they even have a hard time. I mean, that trauma has been passed down into their families. So I'm hoping we can find a way to restore respect for them and their parents and grandparents' amazing achievement, because it is de facto the way the world hears music. W Williams himself still carries uh, the echoes of that as well, where uh, a friend of mine told me a story from a couple of decades ago where he attended uh, Tanglewood, and Lucas Foss was doing a kind of moderated discussion with John Williams. And he said the whole time Williams kept essentially apologizing for writing film scores until finally Lucas said, will you stop that? We, you're writing the best film scores. You are upholding the symphonic tradition. You are writing works of, of immense cultural value. But he could feel that Williams had been programmed and he was still carrying that baggage despite all still of his does. success. He still does. I talked to him yesterday. I talked to him yesterday and there's this reticence about playing long form works of his film scores. I mean, he does tend to produce and approve short five minute themes right. from. And when you get into where is Schindler's List for orchestra? I mean, 40 minutes, where is where is right. AI? Where where are those? Concerts? Or like what Corleano did with the red violin yes. where you can make, you can make, you know, An a 15 version, to 20 yes. minute or then a full violin concerto. Actually, yeah. this, this was actually the same approach that Charles Gerrard, who John mentioned a while ago, did in the 70s when he did that beautiful RCA classic film score series which is still one of the best film music collection ever. And, and he did this long form suites, like 15, 20 minutes, and right. really opened up a, a, a gate, a huge gate, a huge door uh, for a new appreciation of film music in the early 70s. Well, that was really the change. And, and by the way, we should also give credit in Charles Gerhardt's case to uh, George Korngold. George Korngold, yes. Because George Korngold produced all of that and made and found the materials, you know, yes. so... So it was Eric Wolfgang Korngold's younger son who was really instrumental in every sense of the word to making that happen. And for me, having grown up listening to those scores only on television as a little boy out of a you know, three-inch speaker, to suddenly hear that um, it, it it was a life changing. And and so I mean, look, we've got a, a big job ahead of us. We're, I'm I'm calling on anybody interested in being a monuments man or woman of music to take on the mantle. It mostly has to do with the people who program classical music, but it also has to do with our greatest singers and our greatest violinists and cellists. I mean, it's all well and good. Uh, God bless Yo-Yo Ma. If he could only play the Korngold Cello Concerto after he's played the Dvorak, that might make a big difference. You know, the same thing with Josh Bell. If he'd play Castelnuovo Tedesco's second violin concerto that he wrote for Stunning Heifen, piece. that would make Stunning a difference. Piece. So where is the where are where are the people willing to do that work? Because you cannot hang a symphony on the wall. You can take a painting stolen by the Nazis and give it back to the grandchildren or sell it at Sotheby's. But what do you do with something like in the mid symphony, a harmony developed um, through one of his great masterpieces, a three act, opera, a five act opera, actually, that has never been played in the United States of America. I mean, it's never been played, not a word or note sung from it. So there's so much music that that the world is waiting to enjoy. And that's really the job.
That's our job. And also, I think what your book is trying to do, what it, and it's something truly important for me, is creating this sense of a healing process in the yes. world of music and its performance. I mean, in the opening chapter of the book, uh, you speak frankly about how many of the problems pivot around polarizing debates and, and binary concepts, serious versus popular, high art versus low art, and so on. And at the end, you offer some ideas and possible solutions to overcome these prejudices, to finally find a way to make the audience um, appreciate the lineage that goes from Wagner. And I think the audience would immediately accept it if they heard it. You see, you can't... You if you keep telling people music is bad, they have no way to judge it. The only way to judge it is to hear it. So the only way to hear it is to play it, right? So Maurizio, your job is to get an Italian publisher to publish the war on music anytime. See? <laughs> and we try to get it in German and get it in French. And then, well, there it's just that the discussion has to happen. Did you find any resistance in this regard? Because I yes. know that because some of the the arguments, of course, are provocative and and rightfully so, in my opinion. But and and I think there is still some resistance in looking at these concepts and these theses and these ideas. And if I know this is not like that, I mean, did you find much resistance in this regard? Mm, well, there's always some resistance, but you see, but there's no dialogue happening. It's, you know, because the critics all are on one side of this thing, there's no one saying, but wait a minute. So if you really do believe that Boulez was the most important composer of the second half of the 20th century, make your case, play the music. You know, when I tell people that after after Boulez completely destroyed Schoenberg, uh, when Schoenberg died, and then Anton von Webern became the number one, the god of music, well, then play Anton von Webern's music, if anybody even remembers how to spell his name. I mean, play it if you love it. But I mean, you know, if you're still, you know, teaching atonal music as being modern or modernistic or postmodern, whatever these words are, at least tell people where this idea comes from, that the idea is over 100 years old. I mean, it's 2023 when we're talking, right? But it was happening in 1923. Well, you know, World War I was over and Schoenberg had a private society, a, a group of people who paid money so that he could write his 12-tone music with his students. But at the same time, Ravel was writing Bolero and we have, and and uh, Sibelius was writing his seventh symphony and Rachmaninoff was writing his fourth piano concerto. And and soon uh, Kurt Weill was writing Three Penny Opera and he had thrown away all his atonal stuff. And let's say we also had Gershwin writing a Rhapsody in Blue and we had Nessun Dorma, 1924. That's actually what was happening a hundred years ago not the continuation of this modern world that we've been taught is the only history of the 20th century. It's a larger, more complex and vital story. That's mm -hmm. all I'm talking about. And, and, and since you, you brought him uh, a couple of times, uh, I want to touch upon, uh, John, about the, a recent uh, interview that Danny Elfman did. He was asked about you know, the status of how he considers film music to be a modern classical music. And, and, and he says, and I'm quoting Danny, it's an argument I've gotten into with my conductor that I frequently work with, John Mocheri. John will argue that film music is the classical music of today, and I'll argue it's not. In fact, I couldn't disagree more. Film music, 90% of the time, has to get greatly simplified and condensed in order to work with a scene, not fight it, and to go with the movie. 
Occasionally, you are allowed to do a score that gets really dense and wild and crazy, but those are so far and few in between. I said, it's not classical music because people who go to hear music in a concert hall or film music want to hear the music that plays to the movie that they love. And the goal with starting with concert music was, can I put music out there that has no association with anything? It just has to stand up on its own. The stakes are so much higher. So, when people love a movie, they tend to love the music, hence you've got concerts with some of the most boring and some of the best music written in the last 50 years. And so, this is just a debate that we've had running for ages. What could we <laughs> argue back to Danny? Because I well, think he makes... I will, I, I will tell you this. First of all, you know, I don't have to say how much I love Danny and how much I respect his point of view. What he's talking about is his personal experience, of course, which is quite different. I mean, when he has to fight with uh, Tim Burton about a theme, whether a theme is too obvious and he wants it. So, you know, that's a different relationship that Danny might have with him than with another director. I mean, you know, he told me a story about Spider-Man where he wrote the first score and he was supposedly writing the second score, but it didn't sound enough like Danny Elfman. So he was fired. So they found a composer who sounded more like Danny Elfman than Danny Elfman. Um, so, I mean, yeah, the, if you're going to write for movies, you're going to have a lot of bosses and you're going to have bosses who you may or may not respect or you can work with. John Williams, fortunately, has got a longtime collaborator who respects his music and he allows him to write. So some of what Danny is saying, I perfectly understand as being part of what he's saying here. But the bottom line is that his argument goes right back to the end of the 19th century. The reason my book, The War on Music, after that first introductory book, starts with the end of the 19th century is it talks about Brahms and Wagner, right? And this is it. Brahms was seen by the most important critic of the time as being pure. He wrote pure music, whereas Wagner was writing scenery. He was not writing music. He was writing rainbows and a frog, and he was writing a dragon, and he was writing, you know, <laughs> storm music. It wasn't real music. But anybody who knows Brahms and can go into Symphony Number no. Three, which quotes Wagner, because he was Wagner died when he was writing it. You know that that the secret mysteries of that are always there. And look at what Mahler said. Mahler said, "Now, when I helped." Uh, write the, the uh, background material for the movie Tar with Kate Blanchett. One of the things we discussed with the writer and director of that, Todd Field, I said to him, what's your favorite symphony? Because uh, I didn't know what he was writing. He said Mahler's Fifth. I said, well, this is really an interesting symphony you chose because Mahler said every symphony has a program. Every symphony from Beethoven on has a story. It's all movie music. But you don't necessarily have to tell the audience what that is. That's what gave Mahler the way to go forward. Now, so is Mahler's fifth at a higher standard as or higher level, as Danny would say, as opposed to Mahler, who never wrote an opera, who never would have written a movie score? He died, of course, a little bit too early, though it's possible with silent movies. But so the question of Again, it's like what Austin said about John being somewhat apologetic about writing movie music as opposed to his symphonic scores. The same thing with Ennio Morricone. I said to Maestro Morricone, why do you write in two styles? And he said to me in Italian, I respect the genre because he believed that movie music should be simpler, you know, more like Mahler, more like Strauss, and that concert music should be more like Xenakis and... You know, so and so what happens? People don't go to hear 
the music that Morricone, I mean, you know this, when when Ennio Morricone was alive and he would do his concerts in Italy, first half was his concert music, second half was his film music. Yes. When people learned that, they started coming in after the intermission <laughs> because that was what they wanted to hear. Yes. So, so just like John and Danny is, you see, is a little bit trapped in that history. I respect what he's saying, but if you don't, if you think that his violin concerto isn't an autobiography, then I don't think you've got ears to hear. I know what that violin concerto is about, even though Danny won't necessarily say yes or no, because it is such autobiography. In fact, after we did the world premiere in Prague, each movement got applause. I mean, the audience in Prague had no idea how long, four movements, yes, okay, that's in the program, but is it seven minutes? Is it 12 minutes? But after the third movement, which I believe is a, is the, is a heartbreaking movement, just extraordinary. I know Danny's mother was dying at the time. I, I know that his relationship with his mom was so fundamental to what was going on. Now, he may say, John, you're out of your mind. I mean, you can tell you can tell yourself that it's about that, but it's not about that. But his daughter was in tears after that. And she said, I've never, I've never had my father express those emotions to me until I heard it in his music. So, okay. So is it just a violin concerto in four movements? Okay. It's not about anything. Okay. But actually, why did he write it? Why is it? Why did it become four movements? Why does it? Why does it end with the Dies Irae? Right? Da, da 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 in the major. I mean, no one in the history of quoting Dies Irae from the from the chants of the dead ever quoted it in the major until I heard Danny. I laughed when I first time I saw that score. I said, Danny, look at what you've done. You've made the death thing into a major, into major tonality. It's like the most extraordinary embrace of death that I've ever heard of. You know, if Mozart ends the G minor symphony in G minor in a happy dance, that's really unusual, right? Mm -hmm. Every symphony by Beethoven ends in a major triad. I mean, no matter where you start in a Beethoven symphony, you're going to end in a major triad. Now, here's Danny Elfman, you know, having this moment where the where the song of the dead, which has been quoted by everybody, including him and Rachmaninoff and everybody else, suddenly in the major. And so when it comes to its stasis at the end, this kind of sweet farewell, I find it overwhelming. Now, okay, so is that he was free? He didn't have he didn't have Tim Burton telling him I don't like that tune or that's got to be shorter. He just wrote. So in that sense, he was freer. But the music was also controlling him and telling the narrative. So is it the classical music of our time? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. yes. And I hope and I hope you write lots more. And I hope somebody, you know, pays for him to write a symphony because Danny has got this huge arc ahead of him. Um, it's a and great Danny, imagination. If yes. If you're listening to this, Danny, I still love you. <laughs> <laughs> and I would like to 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 ask Austin about the same thing. I mean, how do, do you did you do you recognize himself in Danny's words in this regard? Because I mean, I think you also wrote concert music. So I think that you also tried your your hand about doing something that isn't necessarily working as a as a component of an of a bigger of a bigger package. There's no question that you can't directly analogize much from the concert world 
from the director producer kind of relationships that that is definitely a thing that uh, adds a wrinkle potentially but like john suitably pointed out it may also be an enabler you know you have these classic stories like spielberg recutting the bicycle chase scene in order to fit to williams music instead of the other way around so there are um there are those types of directors i've been lucky to work with a few uh, and also in the in the video game side very much there was a moment on journey uh which on the you know on the album we refer to it as the final confluence but there's a moment in that game where they had showed me the storyboards of what the sequence was going to look like. I went and wrote a piece of what I was imagining the final to look like. And then when they did their first true draft, they married them together and we all watched it together and the music was way overselling it. And I said, I think I better step this music back. And I remember the director of the game, Genova Chen said, actually, we need to redo the visuals to match what you've done because you're, you've managed to capture what we all we're trying to do and you just stuck the landing a little bit more effectively than the rest so don't you walk it back we need to step it up so there there are those moments where it like as a as a slight loving rebuttal to uh danny elfman i i also would argue that when he talks about we have to simplify music i think that the constraints in which we operate also have a tendency to be a bit of a pressure cooker you know that the kind of thing that can turn coal into diamonds where the the narrow constraints of deadlines budgets director feedback can yield great work including simplification i think simple this is again kind of like i've got my spiel about orchestral versus symphonic i have another spiel about simple versus simplistic simple is bum 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 it's also e equals mc squared it's elegance it's it is potency in saying the least amount possible a, a, a talent i don't have uh, and then <laughs> yeah we share this this is a kingship that uh whereas the um whereas simplistic is i don't trust the audience to get it i don't believe the director can understand i don't this that the other so i'm going to dumb it down it's fundamentally condescending to me simplistic is a negative simple is is the highest positive so sometimes if a if a director says I think this is too dense. We should simplify it. I'm always telling younger composers, they may be helping you find the best version of it because as composers, we're also, you know, every time up at bat, especially if you're living sort of commission to commission, every time you are asked to write, you think, oh, well, this is my one chance. I better get every idea I've ever had in my entire life out onto the page in this four bars and you overwrite the living crap out of it and it's and it's it's not actually better for its density so i ironically i would use danny's kind of comment it, it just flipped on its head and say that uh, the, the parameters in which we operate can can be can be a godsend and that's not something unique to film music by any stretch you know if you're doing a ballet you are limited by all manner of physical considerations and and also what's the size company how much rehearsal is going to be afforded how do you have a pit how what kind of ensemble uh do you have to work with all of these are things that composers i, I always remember coming across a quote i don't remember the exact quote and it's probably one of those apocryphal things but but uh beethoven making some comment uh, john you could validate if you've heard this before or not some comment along the lines of you know sort of resenting being limited by the physical capabilities of the human body when writing you know un, sort of relentlessly high soprano parts uh so, where it's just the idea that there are constraints imposed on us by everything 
around us. Uh, and, and, you know, you read about the conditions under which Mozart's writing the Jupiter Symphony and you just think, well, how's that? How's that much different than what anybody else is dealing with? I mean, it's, you know, never mind lo losing one's children and all these other kinds of things that re represent their own form of constraints and, and challenges and, and obstacles and burdens. And so, yeah, I don't, I, I, I think Danny, we composers who earn their living in the world of film and a TV and a video games often develop this kind of mythologized idea of the concert composer as this, we, we all hear the stories of Arvo Part or like one of my teachers, Morton Lauritsen, who's composing by candlelight on an island with no running electricity or water. And that it's this incredibly pure uh, expression of something very mystical. And I always say, you know, I, I really don't think any of that's really quite true. <laughs> I think we all, we all learn to try to optimize under duress <laughs> well i think i think if i if i may and and uh and this one hour talk is is perilous to getting to two but but i, I would say that ultimately these decisions are going to be made by the public and you know in in my country we have every major school has got tenured professors of composition and you would think that if you are a tenured professor that means that you don't have to worry ever about selling your music you have three meals a day and a home and your family whatever that is and you get to go to meetings every now and then and you can just write and you would think that with say a century or even a half a century of tenured professors this would be the ideal world that aristotle would think was the highest level of a civilization let your composers write whatever they want and we would have a surfeit of masterpieces 50 years of war of world beloved masterpieces in classical music and i ask you to name me one <laughs> because really what danny is talking about what austin's talking about is a relationship because it is ultimately going to be some kind of collaboration and ultimately that collaboration is going to be with the listener Right. You might argue with the person who's paying for this or the the conductor of the this or the that. But ultimately, that's where it lands and has always landed, because if we want to take that crazy old idea that, well, composers always write ahead of their time. Well, even Pierre Boulez said, I'm afraid that in music, my time has been too slow in accepting what. Well, well, Pierre, maybe it's just that nobody wants to hear that. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm not saying that it's not good. I mean. You wrote what you had to write. I hope people and everything you've written has been recorded so people can hear it. And anybody who wants in a private festival to play the complete works of Pierre Boulez for whoever wants to come, God bless you. Paint your house with it, eat it for lunch. But here's the fact. You know, you look at someone like Nikos Roja. Can we, will we play his orchestral concert works, which are much more complex? Or did the simplifying nature of writing for, say, Ben-Hur or Spellbound force him in that simplicity to write better music. I'm not here to say which or the other, because quite frankly, we're not playing his orchestral yes. music. But, <laughs> but, but, but everybody, you know, the worst thing you can give an artist is to say, do whatever you want. Well, what is that supposed to mean? You know, you're still the lowest string of a violin is going to be a G. So there's no way if you say, I really have to write a low B flat for the violin. You know, you're always going to have something there. It's 10 minutes long, it's 20 minutes long. It's a ballet. It's an opera. You're, you know, every composer we can think of wrote for somebody, wrote for some conditions and under terrible conditions frequently. Think about 
how many wars were going on in Europe when people were writing the music we love? I mean, Wagner wrote The Ring in Switzerland. He was not even allowed to be in Germany. I mean, it's, it's madness for us to think about that somehow it was better, so that these constraints all help exactly what Austin's saying. You concentrate, you get rid of the, and sometimes when someone says no, they're doing you a great favor. Mm -hmm. Sometimes no is something that you want to fight. And sometimes no is is the gift. So this is, and, and the great composers transcend all those no's, transcend them. And we are the recipient of their genius. And maybe part of genius is to know how to manage that no, manage the conversation, manage the discussion points. Mm -hmm. And if you can't stand it, you get out and you stop writing. That's what you do. But the ones we cherish are the ones who continue on and find the solution. That's a, that's a great summation, John, because I think that, you know, trying to to collect to condense and to re to collapse our everything we just said because it really it's such a fascinating talk that we can go in, in so many directions but i think that maybe a, a good way to to wrap our conversation is uh, i found a beautiful quote by john williams from 2015 where he says about you know asked about the success of star wars music he says this I can only say that I'm enormously grateful that people have embraced this music and it's brought them to orchestral music in the way that it has for many younger people. And in my own mind, I don't have a prejudice about, or should I say, make a particular distinction between something that's high art or low art. As Leonard Bernstein was always fond of saying, there's good and bad. It could be the Beatles or it could be Bella Bartok. Music is there for everybody. It's a river we can all put our cups into and drink it and be sustained by it. So you have to say that I've never had any intellectual problem with that. I'm not in such an ivory tower in any respect that I need to worry about that in my own work. Whether I'm writing for a concert or film, it's very simple. I just try to do the best I'm able to do. And other people will judge it for whether it's high, low, wide or narrow, or whatever it may be. People want to hear it and want to play it, it just gratifies me. And as I listen, I think to myself, I wish I could do better, and I'll try to do better in the next time. That's my personality, and that's the degree to which I'm magnetized to music itself. Only time will tell us the real currency and the real value of anything that we do. If anything has a permanence of any kind, we have to feel that it's a contribution that must be giving people something that they need at some level. And that's what we all need to do. is not work, but contribute. I think this is a nice submission of many things we we just we 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 talk about during our conversation. Well, it's been lovely talk ch chatting with you and Austin. You look well as always. I have, and, uh, and likewise, I have, I have a feeling, um, uh, Maurizio, that you've got at least two or three podcasts. From <laughs> but really, really, thank you so much for for. And thank allowing... you for having my book down there. <laughs> it's a wonderful read. I really suggest everyone watching or listening to this uh, really go out and buy this book, The War on Music by John Cherry, because it's a really an open-minded work. More. Absolutely. And and it's definitely something that will... it It's sparking a discussion, as this discussion is really demonstrating. I mean, I think it's a great conversation starter for people working in the music field, but also for music lovers. And, and it's an important job to do now. So thank you, John. 
for for allowing us to be to, to this lovely conversation. Thank you, Grazie Austin. Alla prossima, eh? Alla prossima. We will we'll talk again for sure. Thank you, Austin, for for your time and for being a, such a passionate advocate of anything about music. <laughs> It's a pleasure and a privilege. And and talk to both of you very soon. Thank okay. you, everyone, right. for listening and watching. <laughs>